Hi, and uh, welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. The topic today is a topic very dear to my heart, and I am absolutely thrilled to have two people very closely associated with it as my guests. Uh, I'd like to welcome Lorna McCauley and Rebecca Hutton to the podcast. And Lorna, would you like to start by introducing yourself? Thanks, Nick. Uh, yeah, my name is is certainly Lorna McCauley, and I um, I my day job is a chief executive of the Harris Tweed Authority, based here in Stornoway. Um, Stornoway is the, the the main town in in the island of Lewis, um, but Harris Tweed. Um, as the name suggests, began its uh, its journey in the Isle of Paris, uh, which is interesting. Not not technically a, a separate island, um, but a, 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 a separated from the Isle of Lewis by a, a mountain range, and and is absolutely genuinely the home of Harris Tweed, where where Becca is today. And um, uh, the Harris Tweed Authority is an unusual and um, anomalous um, organisation. It is the technically the legal guardian of the unique uh, industry that is is the Harris Tweed industry. Uh, nobody no, nobody owns Harris Tweed. Um, uh, the Harris Tweed Authority hold it in trust for the good people of the Outer Hebrides, and it's a real joy and privilege, and sometimes a responsibility indeed to to have a role in in looking after uh, such a precious thing. Because it is an Outer Hebridean thing, it's not a Scottish thing or anything else thing. No, no, it's uh, it is uh, we 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 fiercely protect it as a Outer Hebridean asset. Um, the the industry, uh, the cloth by law can only be made in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland, and in terms of definition, that is any of the islands of the Outer Hebrides from the uh, Butt of Lewis uh, in, in the north to the islands of uh, Barra and Battersea, and indeed, technically, St Kilda, also in, in, in the south. Uh, but in reality, nowadays, um, all Harris Tweed cloth is manufactured and woven in either Lewis or Harris. And um, we, we, you know, we, can, we can certainly talk more about that as, as the discussion goes on. Now, the legal protection of the Harris Tweed is fairly recent, but Tweed as such, has been woven for a very long time on the islands. That's right. Um, there is there is certainly evidence of of uh, cloth manufacture and and weaving um, dating back. You know, archaeologists are, are archaeologists are able to find it from from sort of the, the 16th century. Um, but we take the origins and the roots of the Harris Street industry from about 1846, and that was. Um, Largely credited to the arrival on Harris of the of the Lord, Lord Dunmore and his wife um, Catherine Herbert, and the story goes that um, in, in so the eighteen forties uh, he arrived uh, on the island and 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 sadly didn't didn't live too long after arriving on Harris, and when his uh, widowed wife Catherine, um, the Countess of Dunmore, was settling. Um, his estate, and as you can imagine, travelling back and forth from London to do so was was not as we do now, and jump on a, a one-hour flight and you know be, be in, in the in Central Belt, and then another hour flight to London. You know, I can imagine it was a, a three or four-day horse and cart ride, and 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 more even. Um, she began to market the products, the woven products of the 
islanders of Harris that she had befriended to her wealthy and aristocratic friends and contacts in London. She would take pieces of woven cloth back and forth with her when she was settling her husband's estate and people would buy the cloth and she would return to, to Harris with more orders and um, slowly but surely an industry was born and um, the records show that um, the Countess of Dunmore funded and encouraged two uh, sisters, the MacLeod sisters, um, uh, to fr from from the village of is it Borisdale, Becca? I think it is. Um, they, they were they were from um, to Strond. Yeah. Beg your pardon. Thanks. Um, to to um, travel to to Paisley, which was at that time the sort of textiles hub of Scotland. To learn the skill of, of sort of commercialised weaving and, and bring that back home and cascade it to other island weavers and, and thus that an industry was born. So, so yeah, the roots, the roots begin in royalty in about 1840. And interestingly enough, um, the islands kind of resisted the Industrial Revolution after a certain point. Yes, I, I think that's that's I think that's right, and um, I I think uh, you know we, we look at we look at how how you know the industry you know it, it's it never ceases to amaze me that in 1909 when the then Hadstreet Association board members I mean such vision and foresight to think to uh, protect what was you know a you know, a cottage industry, you know, was individuals at their own homes making cloth, you know, in what must have been, you know, extremely difficult and poverty, you know, um, after after the you know, potato famines and, and things must have been hugely difficult. But to have that vision to, to, to say, no, this is ours and we're going to carry on doing it this particular way and protect it. It's unique and it's special and it's ours. Um, and, you know, my, my job today, you know, we have uh, the internet and, uh, Alibaba and Taibo and 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 all of these threats. These guys didn't have that, and they still had the vision and foresight to to protect in the face of that industrial commercialization and revolution that was happening all around. To say, you know, we're, we're keeping we're keeping what's special about Harris Tweed, you know, as ours. And and I I I have just enormous respect for for what happened back in at that time. And and part of this is that it has to be woven in. Uh, crofter's home on the islands and also by manual power that's right um, which is why becca my other guest today has the thighs of a professional cyclist is that right becca <laughs> i don't think they're quite as toned but uh, they are definitely as big <laughs> move over chris hoy but, but why is that that it was never allowed to be industrialized. Is that just to keep the sort of entry level for someone to get involved in weaving fairly low? Uh, I mean, Lorna probably knows better than I do, but I would imagine it was purely because they wanted to keep it at the weaver's own homes. Um, and when all of this started, there wasn't electricity. I mean, in some parts of the islands, electricity didn't come until the 50s. That's true. Um, so there was there was no option. You couldn't have motorised looms, although there were motorised looms being used in, you know, Yorkshire and, and places like that. There was no way of plugging them in. So in order to make it work, you'd have to set up a system where you cycle to generate the power in order to generate your looms. So you may as well just tidal away at the looms. 
Rebecca's absolutely right. That that that's that's as basic an answer as it was. That uh, you know the the key thing about Harris Tweed was that it brought employment to the most rural parts of Lewis and Harris. Um, commerce and trade was beginning to be centred in Stornoway, and what you know that that would have flown in the face of everything Harris Tweed stood for was to was to uh, you know bring people into to commercial hubs in the town um, to to weave Harris Tweed. What we what they wanted to achieve was keep economic activities in these fragile rural villages, which did not have at that time um, electricity. And um, the, the other really interesting um, fact was that uh, on returning from the wars, you know, there were an awful lot of island men who sadly had lost limbs. And my understanding is that part of the design process around the tidal loom was was um, the consideration that there, there needed to be um, work for for returning veterans, and uh, and hence you know the foot pedal pedal loom uh, Hattersley loom was was brought in as 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 a as a, as a contribution to to that. So really, the Harris Tweed weavers are among the original work from home people because there has never been a centralized factory or it has always been done in the home yeah i'll allow becca to to, to, to take that one but you know we we've dealt with a you know a, a, obviously a number of, of dealing with press as, as part of, of what we do at the authority here and um over the last uh, year whilst we've been living in these unprecedented times you know we've been saying that gosh Harris Tweed Weavers have been the masters in working from home and isolation and um all of these things that we are grasping to get used to Becca and others have been doing for years and doing well. Absolutely what lockdown <laughs> I mean, it was one good thing when there was that big push, actually, for working from home. It was like, oh, well, as long as I don't have to move everything from the loom shed into the house, I should be okay. <laughs> but uh, it, it is, and I think the the fact that there's never been any sort of, of mass centralisation of Harris Tweed has meant that nobody's ever thought about doing it again, if that makes sense. You know, it's not like it was done at some point and then they thought, no, what we should do is separate this back out and that, which I find really interesting because... It is unusual in this day and age for somebody not to be pushing to change things and to turn it into that, but but nobody bothers because it works the way it works and always has done. I mean, there have been attempts in the past to to take the industry off the island. There have been attempts to to set up sort of commercialised uh, and the Harris Tweed Association, which was the organisation predating the Harris Tweed Authority, who I work for, um, you know, showed its teeth. And, and fought vigorously to say, no, we're, we're not having that. Uh, you know, people may say it's old fashioned, people may say it's, you know, stuck in the dark ages or a, a cook, or we're not being a dynamic and going with going with trends. But the, you know, such was the, the will to retain the values, the original values of Harris Tweed that um, the, the, the work from, the weaver working from his or her home um, is, is just non-negotiable. And I have to say, that, that said though, you know, we do have, we recognise that not everybody is blessed enough to have an, a garden or a outbuilding. Um, we have to acknowledge that we live in a world where um, you, people live with in social housing and, and other arrangements. And, and, you know, we do have mechanisms to accommodate that but within that weaver's own 
uh, community or or extended kind of um, uh, locale, but but not into centralised commercial hubs in in in, the, in towns. It is important though to protect what makes Harris Tweed unique and rare. Uh, there aren't, I can't think of any other fabrics that have the legal protection that's making them so special as the Harris Tweed. No, no, I, you know, I, I don't think there are other, um, you know, certainly not textile products that have have this um, this really unusual and, and, and protected uh, status. I mean, clearly, there are uh, food products that are analogous and um, with with what with what we are trying to do and champagne being being the, the kind of obvious one um, and other geographically protected uh, foodstuffs um, and certainly you know we prior to to brexit there we were uh, the harris tweed industry was being held up i suppose as the poster boy or girl um of the the, the a real a real um a real mo movement towards introducing non Food products, non-food and drink products, to the geographic indication movement, and, and you know we absolutely meet all all the, the criteria of of that uh, level of protection, which interestingly the public understand much more than ever our our kind of trademark and and our act of parliament. The public understand GI. They understand that a Milton Mowbray pork pie is protected, um, that are both smokies are protected, that champagne is protected, that parmahan is protected. And, and they are willing to pay a premium price to buy these food and drink products. Um, and so we really wanted um, Harris Tweed to fall under that level of, of um, consumer aware um, protection to add that to our, our that add that particular string to our bow. But after Brexit, um, um, sadly, the UK has not adopted non-agri GIs, and, and we've lost some 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 groundwork there. But um, might come later. But uh, you know, I'm I'm I I think it's just I think it's so tremendously important to that we have we in the face of, of you know commercialisation and and the fast fast fashion and technology and all the things um, that have happened over the last 140 years that we have kept these values. Through to to you know our ancestors who, who devised and set up this thing and and that's not to say you know we run the industry in a thoroughly twenty first century way it's just that the cloth is woven in this way that looks after the weavers looks after communities um, and 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 then we're true to to that value. It strikes me though that Harris Tweed is kind of less about the business. It's not about. I mean, clearly it has to survive. It has to make a profit and all that. But it's also so much more. It's more like a social experiment. Uh, when I visited the islands, uh, I was struck by um, how similar they were to where I grew up in the north of Norway. Not necessarily the towering mountains, but how few people live there and probably how few jobs there are. So I can only imagine the social importance of being able to have a loom in the shed and make a living pretty much wherever you live on the islands yeah absolutely um and and i think one of the most important things about weaving um or harris tree weaving anyway in the fact that it's at home is that it always fitted into the the island lifestyle the crofting lifestyle if you like so I mean, going way back in the day, you would do it in amongst everything else you were doing, whether that was looking after the animals or fishing or 
whatever else you might be doing. You could then weave um, in the weekend or in the evenings or, you know, whenever. And even now, in order to survive in the islands, unless you have, you know, a, a a good job with the local authority, with the, the NHS, somebody like that, where you can get good full-time uh, work, chances are you're going to have at least two jobs. <laughs> and weaving, again, fits in. It still fits in today with that. Um, and you don't need to worry too much about, you know, working late at night and the noise of it or, you know, big motors running or anything like that because it is, it's a nice, it's a nice noise, <laughs> the clickety-clack. Um, but like you said, most people are actually isolated enough that you don't have, you know, a hundred other people living on top of you um, where you're going to be disturbing them and things like this. So, yeah, it is definitely. But I think it's just, I don't know, maybe it's different because I've grown up with it. It's it's as part of the islands as the hills and the beaches and the sea. You know, the noise of it, the, 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 the sheds, the fabric itself, everything. The whole industry is just... It's just part of island life for us. Yeah. So how, how did you get into weaving, Becca? Uh, I look after my brother who's got some disabilities and that, and we'd had to go away to the mainland for a few years for things for him. And I was home on holiday, um, and we were looking at moving back because they'd kind of done as, as much as they could for him. And I was speaking to a friend of mine who just so happened to be doing the weaving course that had been set up on the double width looms to weave for the mills and I was like oh you know that would be really interesting but I've got no interest in double width weaving because again just for me the single width weaving is what I knew as Harris Tweed weaving that's what we had in the village and everything and I was like you know if only one day there would be a course like that that would be good and that was that and then less than a year later I heard they were doing a course for single width <laughs> so I got in touch and I said you know I'm coming back if you ever do another one, let me know, please. And they did, and I did it, and here I am now. And the difference between, or the significance of the single width and the double width, is it purely uh, purist versus versus modern, or...? <laughs> an interesting question. Um, <laughs> the, they're, they're just different. I mean, the, the double width obviously produces a double width cloth. Um, single width produces approximately 75 centimetres wide when finished, double width approximately 150. Um, there are variations in the looms and what can actually be woven on them. There's some patterns that um, we can weave on a Hattersley that you can't weave on uh, the double width looms and vice versa. There's things they can do that we can't do. Um, but production-wise, you can produce more per hour on a double width loom um, linear length than you can on a single width. Uh, so a lot of the mills will use double width weavers because they can produce a cloth faster. It's still hand woven or foot woven. It's like bicycle pedals as opposed to treadles, which we have in the single width. But um, yeah, it, there's always going to be those who prefer the single width because of the history of it. Um, you know, they are, that's the looms that came up here in the 20s. Like Lorna was saying earlier, for, for especially returning servicemen, the um the old wooden looms that had been used before then, you had to have two working arms and two working legs because you had to move for every single shot going back and forth. You you had to do something. The Hattersley came in and it had automatic arms, if you like, to move the shuttle back and forth. So you didn't need to use that. And it had two titles instead of one 
it's getting very technical like instead of one for every board so if you had and i i knew a weaver who had a wooden foot um and he just he had a block to adjust for it and he could kind of strap his foot on and away he'd go and weave no problem mm. um but they are they're the they're the loom people will think of when they think of Harris Tweed. And I think because predominantly, and Lorna will correct me if I'm wrong on this, I think, I don't know if there are any independent weavers weaving on double width looms at the moment. I think they're all on single width. So it means as well that for anybody who comes to visit, chances are they're visiting an independent weaver and they'll still see the Hattersley looms. So that's still the loom associated with the industry. So, um, from my point of view, obviously, the better loom, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> do, do they both sound the same? No, 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 they sound very different. Um, the the Hattersley looms are noisier, um, and you have to you have to do a lot more with it. You're having to watch things. It's not as as up to date as the the doublet looms, which have a an alarm to tell you if a, if the yarn is broken, for example. We have to just watch it and see. Um, the Hatters looms also are a shuttle loom, so a boat shuttle that you fit a like a mini bobbin inside, um, and that's what flies back and forth. The double width looms are rapier looms, and it's like a wee hook that goes from one side to the other that picks up just a single strand of yarn, takes it over, cuts it. Um, so even from a design point of view, if you're weaving on the Hattersley, you've got to do everything in twos because whatever goes down has to come back up. Can't just hang around down there doing nothing. Um, the double width looms they don't. It's a single end that's going down every time. So um, different design capabilities, different noises. They're quieter. Um, you don't need to watch it so much. Uh, yeah, Hattersley still better. <laughs> <laughs> Being more modern though, the 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 double widths are probably easier for spare parts and so forth. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's they're being still being manufactured today, so it is a relatively straightforward um, experience to get apart for a double loom. Um, Hattersleys, it's you know you need to know people uh, and hope that they let you into their sheds and you can rake around the back and see what you can find. <laughs> Especially the Mark II Hattersley Mark IIs, which came up to the islands in the seventies, um, and there were very few of them made compared to the Mark One. So. Consequently, there's very few parts that are kicking around. There's a lot of parts interchangeable, but it'll never be a part you need. Um, you can get some manufactured today. They're expensive. And usually, whoever, whoever is manufacturing it wants minimum orders because um, they don't want to just make one part for one loom. So it's, it is a bit more awkward. But having said that, the Hatchley looms are so robust, so well made. It's cast iron, steel, and wood. And if you look after them, you know, they're not breaking down every week. They will just keep going. Um, so they were built to last, you know, and there's people still weaving on the original 1920 looms that came up. So they did something right. They are 100 years old now, which is remarkable, yeah. really. So speaking of cost, uh, obviously you're an independent weaver in your own shed. Uh, you, you buy your own loom, I take it. What, what sort of investments are we talking well, I again because I did this course, um, I was able to rent the loom. Um, it was part of the course they were doing to get younger people into weaving. Um, after they'd done the double width course, they realised that obviously there was a dearth of of young Hattersley weavers in the islands, and that the skills of those weavers would be lost unless they took younger people in. And at the time, I was classed as a younger person, so um, <laughs> I did the course. 
But, uh, but as part of that, the looms were actually sourced for us um, and we were able to rent them. And now we've been able to, to buy them. But, um, but it was a great start because otherwise you could be, for some looms you can get for a bottle of whiskey, other looms you're going to be paying a phenomenal amount of money. It just all depends who's selling. So it could be a huge investment for something that maybe wouldn't work out for you. So we were quite lucky. We got the opportunity to start and and pay a small rental and then we've had the opportunity to buy if we carried on with the, the weaving. Mm. Nick, just, just to put that in, in, in context, you know, when, when Rebecca and I were growing up um, on the islands, the Harris Food industry was, was something I would imagine our parents wouldn't necessarily have encouraged us into. It was an industry that was... Um, fraught with highs and lows, uh, peaks and troughs. Um, it was an industry that didn't have, you know, a mechanism of, of pay and reward or progression or, you know, any of the things that you would want, you know, a young person to to go into in their career. Um, and, and I don't think that's any different from the textile industry more widely it, 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 in, in history. It was, it was a it wasn't a, a particularly career. It wasn't particularly a career that you would you would want you know your your your, your child to go into. And so, in two thousand and nine, when I came to the Harvest Street Authority, you know we were about to embark on a period where we were inviting, you know, very very significant um, investment into this industry to save it. Frankly, it, it was on the edge. But then we looked at the workforce and whilst they were incredibly skilled a uh, group of largely men um, working in mills and uh, as weavers, um, the average age was 66. And, you know, and we we had to, you know, think on our feet to say, how in the world do we turn the tide and um, attract young people or younger people into this industry, which which had actually you know quite a, a tarnished reputation uh, locally. And um, now fast fast forward uh, uh, 11, 12 years now, um, you know there, there's so many things we can be proud of, but you know one of them is that you know we have databases and, and spreadsheets of of young talented island people who want to work in the student industry because they see whether it's as weavers or as blue collar mill workers or or, or office workers working on the design side, working on the legal side, working on the marketing side, they see, forgive my language, a sexy sector on their own doorstep um, that they want to be part of. And I, I you know, I that is that is just a tremendous shift from what I grew up with. Um, you know, where you know I would have been actively discouraged from from entering uh, this industry for all its woes at the time and 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 look it's not perfect it's it's still got got many got many issues and, and anomalies with it but um you know i i feel enormously proud that there are that are um, young people working in the industry you go around the mills today and you take journalists and, and media crews around all the time and they are staggered to see you know bright, enthusiastic young islanders um, so enthused about working in this ancient industry. And, and that's that's a really a, that's a real success story for us. Mm. You were speaking of ups and downs, and I think around the millennium, things were looking pretty bleak, weren't they? Yes. Around uh, 2003, 2004. We have to drag it up. Yeah. <laughs> Don't yeah. the guy. Yeah. So, well, just just for a, a bit of context, um, is the Harris Street industry production peaked in 1966 at 7.6 million yards in those days of cloth leaving these island shores. Um, 
before my time, before I think all of our times, uh, that that would have been, um, you know, people talk of of every home, every village, and every home having a connection to the Harris Street industry at that time. And um, the bus timetables were entirely uh, prepared and planned around mill shifts. It was it was the mainstay of the island economy, su- supporting fishing and crofting and and many of these people who were working in the industry as Rebecca said a moment ago would have had many occupations you know they'd have been fishermen they'd have been crofters and they'd have been uh, weavers or Harris Street workers um, and then there have been peaks and troughs throughout uh, the 70s and 80s the American market was hugely buoyant in the mid 80s we were we, we hit we hit about the five million meter mark in the, the mid 80s and um, there are a uh, and a number of reasons and and um, and uh, folk will have different views on why these peaks and troughs, troughs have happened throughout history. Um, some of them are, are purely fashion, some of them are, are business and, and commerce and trade and duty and taxes were, 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 were a challenge for us. Um, but what I would say, and then, and then just to, to put that uh, 7.6 million metre or yard uh, figure in context. In 2009, our industry produced just 450,000 meters of cloth, and that was a point of of real, you know, a discussion around the, the, the future viability of of the Harris Street industry. Did, did it have a future? Was it still relevant? And and we, on the island, strongly believed it was. And 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 I think we've 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 shown that was the right decision. But we we have also in that time acknowledged that. We will never again be a seven million meter industry, nor indeed a five million meter industry, and I don't think we want to be that either. We are what we are. We are um, a finite resource. There are only uh, you know hundred well just nigh on two hundred weavers. There are about one hundred and eighty double width weavers and and about twenty active single width weavers like Becca. Um, when they've done all they can do, that's it. There's no turning on the switch. There's no there's no putting on a second shift they can make what they can make and that in itself creates you know a, a luxury finite thing that's special um we also we, we also recognize that we live in a world of um public transport we live in a world of um central heating men of a day present company like accepted don't necessarily wear their wool jacket of a day you know we live in a world of performance fabrics and and technical textiles and and wool in in in, in garments has as perhaps is less less you know in demand men do not put on their wool jacket like they maybe did in the 60s at that 7.6 million uh, yard uh, milestone of our industry but what what we really are happy about is that if we are a 2 million meter industry we are that every year we're able to be consistent, no highs, no lows, no payoffs, that people have careers that they can rely on, they can get mortgages like you and I can. And, you know, it's it's that we're a sustainable uh, industry going forward rather than this this peaks and troughs thing that that in history. And, and I, I think that's a really um, wise uh, conclusion the industry came to, to not aspire to necessarily be bigger, but just to be better. I agree. Thanks, Becca. <laughs> it's true, but you still get the peaks and troughs. Um, mm-hmm. Very, very small now, but they are more fashion-led. But instead of losing the kind of meterage being woven, you lose the styles. Um, and a different style comes in. So 
I mean, it's very broadly speaking, but say the European market kind of dips a wee bit because they're going for something else. There's another market out there now. That's the thing. It's spread out far more. You're not as reliant on one market. And if that dips, you've had it. So it is. And I mean, for me, since I started, and I have been weaving now, when did I start? 2012. So nine years. Um, and in that time, it's been steady. And I can't ask for any more than that. And and like Lorna said, there is a limit as to what my little legs can produce. Um, and I don't want to, you know, I mean, inevitably this year has, has caused some difficulties. And I do have a bit of a backlog, you know, and people waiting for things. But, oh, I can't imagine anything worse than sitting in a normal year at my loom and thinking, oh, there's another 30, 40, 50, 100 tweeds I've got to do before I can do one for me. You know, and... Um, and I and I think it's it's right. It's it's better to give more steady employment um to to people than than you know getting right bringing another three hundred weavers for six months and then all right well everybody needs to be laid off again you know it's just it's just not sustainable especially the way our islands are now we don't have the people in the islands anymore um so yeah far better I think for for the way it is just now. It does make me wonder how many weavers there were when they managed seven and a half million yards. Yeah, a lot. And, uh, you know, I, we, we fortunately have quite nice archives, which have, have now been gifted by the authority to the, our, our local uh, archive and museum. And, um, you know, that we can find one uh, beautifully handwritten um, document with 1,700 names. Of, of of weavers um we, we don't have a feel necessarily how how many of these were you know producing what level of production there was but you know that that would be more reflective of, of the sort of output um that that would generate seven odd million meters but um you know we've learned so much about um rebecca talks about the training courses that were, were uh, delivered in in to, to kind of encourage more people into the industry and you know we learned that um that maybe the classroom approach to teaching weaving wasn't wasn't the right one. You know, we initially launched in and got tutors and colleges involved and SVQs. And, you know, you would start the course on week one at 9am and aim to finish it at uh, week 26 and, and Friday at five. And, and we realised that was rubbish. That's just not how it doesn't, that's not how it works. And, um, you know, we realised quickly that the the one-to-one mentoring, you know, mentoring, introducing a new entrant weaver with an experienced uh, weaver in his or her broad geography was a much, much better and, and more sustainable way of anybody ever learning to be a Haddis Tweed weaver. Stand and watch, sit on my, you know, my loom and do it with me, I'll, I'll sit over you. Um, and, and for some that took three months, for others it took three years, um, but it was a, a, a greatly um, more effective method of, of teaching new weavers how to weave, but more so that even when the training period was over, if the mill delivered a pattern you've never done before to your weaving shed and you went, help, you know, I don't know how to, to, to do this one, you just phoned your mentor and he came and stood over you and why you tied it in and why you got started. And and I, I know of mentoring relationships that are 10 and 12 years old. Now, you know, the payments have long since stopped, but that friendship and that camaraderie and and i have to say you know for for folk who work alone that 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 relationship was was hugely important and it was by accident we discovered it rather than any any clever plan right because you were trying to do it in a modern way but really it was the old way that worked correct yeah 
And speaking of mentors, that allows me an opportunity to circle back a bit, Becca, to the story I wanted to Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That one's on my case. <laughs> I mean, I well, just kind of touching briefly what Lorna said there. I actually did the the SVQ course. I have my level one and level two in textile manufacturing. Um, but I, so I did the course, did all that, passed everything, started on my own. Um, I was doing my first tweed for me, not as part of the course, when Donald John from Luskentire came in, and his brother lives next door to me, and I've known him obviously forever. Um. So he came in to see how I was getting on and New Year's Day, glittering away about everything. And he said, I'll send you down a, a wee tweed to do. And, All right. Thank you very much. That's great. Off he went. And um, he appeared a few weeks later with, <laughs> um, well, I mean, if that's what he called a wee tweed, I'd have hated to see a, a big tweed. So we still use weaver's yards when it comes to warping and things. And a weaver's yard is eight foot as opposed to a normal yard of three foot. So the tweed he took down, the warp he took down was 43 weaver's yards. So it's over 100 metres. Um, and I, I'd i never seen a beam that big. So he dropped it off. There you go, Becca. Any problems, let me know. And off he went. <laughs> I thought, well, my first problem is I don't know how I'm going to lift this. <laughs> so anyway, lift it I did, got it into the loom. The most stressful tweed I have ever woven in my entire life. <laughs> Um, you know, and we've been taught in the course to check this and check that and check that. Well, I was checking, honestly, every inch or so, I was checking that cloth to make sure it was perfect. And I was weaving it. I could barely climb stairs by the end of every night because my legs were so sore from weaving all day. Um, I had to actually take out part of my shed behind my, my loom seat. I had to take out part of the wall in order to fit because this tweed was so big. I mean, it was, you know, a good two foot across when it was coming off the loom. Um, and then as you take it off the loom, you you take it off in a concertina fashion, so but like an accordion, so that as it runs through the mill, it can come off easily. Um, and you do that on top of the loom. And I'm quite short, and I was struggling at the end to actually fit it on. <laughs> and then you tie it up, lift it round. And I still don't know to this day how I managed to lift it. Uh, but I did. And as I was going round the side of my loom, the belt loop on my jeans got stuck on a part. <laughs> it's about two in the morning. I'm getting crushed under the weight of this, you know, 100 odd meter tweed that's greasy, so it hasn't been finished, so it's heavier. And I'm stuck. <laughs> Snowflake rain, I can show you how I want it. And I mean, I'm just pleased that, you know, there's no webcam in my shed. Because, I mean, I was shimmying and everything, trying to get off this, this lever that I was stuck on, which eventually I did. And at this point, I'm almost on my knees carrying this this tweed over to the bench. So I put it down, job done, phone Donald John. Well, no, I text him actually to say, that's it, ready. So he comes <laughs> the next day to pick it up. You know, thank you very much. Throws it onto his shoulder, one-handed, goes over, climbs a fence with it, um, because he was part of his brother. So just hopped over the fence with this tweed on his shoulder. And I thought, well, that's something now. That's a weaver for you. Maybe one day. And it's funny. I mean, now I'll lift up tweeds without thinking about it, but I haven't tried climbing any fences. But he um, he put that tweed in. He didn't check it, which I thought was just crazy. Um, but he said, no, 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 I, I trust you. And I thought, oh, you're crazy. What do I know about weaving? But uh, he put it in. It passed all the, the checks, um, got stamped, 
uh, he'd taken in my own tweed for me as well. And so he phoned me to tell me that was back. And uh, I said, I don't care about mine. What about your one? You know, did they get the stamp? And oh, yes, no problem. And uh, and then he asked if I wanted another tweed. And I thought, well, it's obviously good enough for him. So it's good enough for anybody else. Um, and that's how I started. So he then became my mentor. And he, I mean, he's forgotten more about weaving than I'll ever learn. Um, and I think the most important thing about that man is that he's not precious with his knowledge at all. He wants to pass it on. He wants younger people to be weaving. He wants to see the industry survive. So he, you know, gives advice on actual weaving, on the business side of things, um, on the industry as a whole, on the looms and um, parts. He, he's just. Yeah, um, I had uh, an incident where the shed where I was going to be doing my warping um, was damaged recently. And so immediately he phoned, he was like, use mine, it's there, anytime you want. Um, and so that's what I've been doing, I've been over there warping. His was a slightly different setup to mine, so first he was down showing me everything. You know, and, and to have that, like Lorna said earlier, to have somebody who knows all of these things, who can head you off at the pass if you're starting to go down the wrong road or making a mistake or doing things like that or just aren't sure, you know, what's going on or how things work. I mean, the Harris Street industry is a very odd industry. As Lorna says, nobody owns it. Um, you know, you've got mills who can't produce tweed themselves. Um, you've got weavers who can, don't produce the yarn anymore. We can't finish the tweed. You know, you, everybody needs everybody else. And when you're starting out, although obviously coming from here, I knew quite a bit about the industry, those intricacies, to have somebody who's been there, done it, and to be able to guide you through it and to explain how things work and, you know, what you need to do and, you know, even just little things like like being prepared to change the tweed you're planning on weaving, depending on, on whether you can get the yarn. You know, don't be set on, I'm only weaving this tweed just now. You know, be ready with, well, if I can't get the yarn for that one, I'll do this one. If I can't do that one, I'll do this one. Little things like that. You know, so I am very lucky. I haven't woven for him for a wee while because um, I would do tweeds for him, maybe a wee one for myself. And, and as my own business has built up, I've cut back what I'm weaving for him. But still, I text him. Um, still, I ask the questions. Still, I get answers. Still, I'm given advice. Um, and as Lorna said, that that kind of mental relationship is is invaluable, absolutely invaluable. And what, I, what I've learned from him I'm passing on to other people. Um, so weavers who've come after me and things I've learned, they'll be like, oh, hey, check this out, you know, or watch in case this happens or, or look for that. Or, you know, and it is because we do work on our own and because especially the independent um, side of it, it, you know, there's not that many of us. We're quite small and we need each other, um, if nothing else, because only another weaver will understand the problems you're having. <laughs> if you've ever tried explaining to a non-weaver about things going wrong in the loom, it's amazing how quickly the eyes glaze over. <laughs> you know, and they're, they're sitting there trying to be supportive, but no idea. So, yeah, it's really, really important. And we have, we've got a wee kind of collective in Harris, um, which is good. So we do all, all help each other. But, yeah, Donald John, a legend in his own lifetime. Indeed, and he must have been weaving himself for close to 50 years now? Just over 50 years. Um, I was quite, 1970, he, just the other day actually, I was asking him, and he gave me the date, I think it was August, I'm sure he said it was after the, the kind of August break, um, he started weaving in 1970, and I was so disappointed, because if I'd known, I'd have made a big deal about it in 2020, so we'll just have to do something for his 51st anniversary. 
And mm. he, I think, because he'd been weaving for the mills, and then as things were like that, you know, as Lorna was saying, everything was up and down, he decided he would kind of branch out and, and maybe just try weaving for himself, and that way selling his own cloth and things. And aside from a couple of years where he was working at other things, you know, he has been working solid in the industry all that time. Um, but I think he's been doing it 20, maybe 30 years. 20 anyway. What are we now? 21, 2001. Oh, yes, because that was the Nike order. So, yeah, over 20 years he's been weaving independently. And at a time when there weren't independents as such. So he's he's had to learn a lot of things the hard way, thankfully, for us. And then you touched upon it again. <laughs> <laughs> the Nike story. Well, there's no way we're going to get out of this. So it has to be mentioned. It has to be mentioned. Um, Nike, the, the footwear company, had got in touch with Donald John and uh, wanted some samples, just tweed samples. So he wove some things and sent them off to them and they liked what they saw. And, I mean, this is obviously cutting a very long story short, but uh, and nobody can tell it quite like the man himself, but they came back and said they would like to order and they would like to order a thousand meters. So DJ was like, right, fair enough. Working out how much he could weave a day, which is around about 25 yards, 25 meters or so. And okay, well, yes, he could do that. That would be fine. And they needed it by a certain time and no problem. And then later on, his wife got another phone call and came out to tell him that they'd made a mistake. And it wasn't a thousand meters that they were wanting to order, but 10,000. Um, at which point TJ was just a little bit dumbfounded um, and wasn't sure what to do um, but took it on in the hope that he'd be able to figure something out and he did he went to one of the mills in Lewis um, and spoke to spoke to them about producing it obviously it was to his design um, the colours he was wanting and I mean again I mean I am cutting a very long story short but they agreed to it and they produced all the yarn that was needed for this. They sent it out to the weavers that had been working for them, all on single-width looms, none of it on double. Um, they washed and finished um, the tweeds and everything like that. Um, and it just they were working 24 hours a day. They had night shifts running and everything like that just to get this order done in time. And it has, and it had boosted things but it takes time for those things to come through for people to then see what for example Nike were using what were they using it for what was this fabric could we use it and it has helped I mean Lauren a little far more than I do you know and it takes time it wasn't a quick fix it wasn't an instant oh Nike put in an order for that hallelujah the industry saved you know it wasn't like that at all and it's taken time but it has and there's still people now who will come back looking for the Nike fabric the Nike tweed you know that part and that design or that weaver, you know, that, that came up with it. I think part of the deal with Nike was that they had to put the Harris Tweed logo on the outside of the shoe. I, I'm not aware of, of that condition um, of, of the arrangement at the time, but it was it was certainly pivotal and certainly one of the first whereby Harris Tweed cloth was used by a, a street brand, if we could call it that, um, and, and certainly one of the very earliest um, accessories that became, you know, that had profile. And, and, and you know, that's why what Don John did in taking on that order, that was 
greatly more than he would ever manage on his own. Uh, and the mill helping him, Shabba's mill at the time, um, uh, helping him to, to fulfil it. You know, it it really and 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 Becca's dead right. It wasn't you know it wasn't that order at that time, but it started something. It, it allowed other brands to see that this hand-woven, um, you know, 100% wool cloth had application in other ways rather than dad's jacket, you know, Sunday-based jacket. And that, you know, that was why our industry needed to evolve. And it was such a such an important, um, you know, Nike of all, of all brands, you know, something that had worldwide, you know, reach and appeal and, you know, um, woven out of, you know, woven out of guys and girls' sheds and the Hebrides of Lewis, you know, and, and the story of it, you know, it, it was just an in- tremendous, um, you know, boost. And we're still dining out on it all these years later and we still we still regale the story. And, you know, when we have new and different sports brands um, coming to us, they they love they love to, to, to know the origins of the, the Nike story. And, and you know, Don John, um, it, it was a really important moment for our industry. I'm very pleased that he did agree to do it because I can't imagine how badly it would be if he'd said, oh, no, can't do that, sorry. <laughs> and that would have been the story told. Well, knowing him with his charm, he'd have found a way around it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, true. Wait, you know, 10 years to get the cloth. <laughs> yeah. Some years after that again, Yorkshireman, Haggis. Ryan Haggis. That sort of caused problems again for Harris Tweed, didn't it? So there are so many twists to the tale. But what what happened with the Haggis story? I think before Lorna comes in with it, the, she was obviously at the time would know far more about what actually happened. But what I think is interesting, and this is before I was weaving, but the word on the on the croft at that time was really, really interesting, I find. Um, and again, I'd been through it where the industry was, oh, it's dying and there's a few people limping on and, you know, there's people like Don John, they're fine because he's just doing it himself, but there's no future in it and all the rest of it. And then this man came in and, oh, he was going to save everything and everything was fine. And two minutes later, oh, he's not. And it was the first time where I heard not just people involved in the industry talking about Harris Tweed and being outraged, absolutely gobsmacked that somebody was coming in, was cutting down patterns and all the rest of it. And it just seemed to galvanize people into wanting to do something. Nobody knew what, nobody had a clue what they were going to do. But there was a feeling, certainly down here at the time, of just, we, we need to do something. Harris Tweed is ours. Um, it belongs to the weavers here. It belongs to the mills. It belongs to the islands. It's ours. We have to do something. Um, which I, even to this day, I find really, really interesting because a lot of those people who were speaking about it at the time and who were outraged, you don't hear from now. They're quite happy with the way the industry is again. But it just shows that island ownership, if you like, of the Harris Street industry, even if you're not actively involved in it, um, which I always just find interesting. But Lorna will tell you all the proper story. <laughs> Thanks, Becca. I completely uh, agree that it was a really um, powerful moment in us as an island realizing that what we have has to be saved. So the business Brian Haggis bought had been on the market for many years. Um, the, the gentleman who at that time owned probably 98% of the Harris Street industry had been trying to retire for, for, for quite some considerable time. And buyers had come and gone, or potential buyers had come and gone, but but had never quite you know signed the deal. Um, Brian Haggis um, has is 
a, a very established and credible textile force in, in the north of England. Um, he he was you know well known, well established. Um, you know certainly had had the reputation and funds, and 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 you know it was, was not in itself uh, an unexpected buyer of of what was um, Kenneth Mackenzie Limited and the Kenneth McLeod brand at the at the time. But Brian Haggis uh, is an indomitable force. He 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 had a very a very um, strong view of of what was wrong with the Harris Tweed industry and his his view and how he was going to fix it. And and one of you know to, to summarize a much more you know it's, it's a much bigger story than, than we can ever have time today. But to summarize, Brian's strategy was to cut the literally thousands of patterns and colours that the mill he had taken over had been making to four. And, and you know, I've told that story in the past and, and, and I, they've come back and he said, four, they've cut it to 4,000. And I was saying, no, no, just four. Uh, and, 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 uh, and Brian's strategy was just to make four patterns of, of cloth and to turn it into one style of gent sports jacket, not to sell the cloth. As, as, as cloth to third party customers to only make cloth to service his own jacket making company to make one style of jacket in four, in four patterns. And, and that was his strategy. And, and, and that's what he ran with, um, believing that that, that that was that was, you know, what would work for, for his his business model. You know, a, a huge quantity of jackets were made. And, and I'm not saying anything Brian today would not disagree with. It didn't work. But you know there were casualties, I mean, from from that strategy. You know, people lost their jobs. Um, our industry was 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 you know was really fragile, more fragile than, than than it had ever been. But what it did is exactly as Becca said, it galvanised um, those you know lay people in the community, but also you know people with business know how the contacts with money and said we cannot allow this act of. Of vandalism to destroy what is what is ours and what is is, is so so va so valid valued by us, and and ironically, you know, it was the acts of it was the act of Brian Haggis that saved this industry. It created um, this urge in us to save something that we love so dearly. It created Harris Street Hebrides, which is by quite some considerable margin that the largest of the three mills uh, now it is what it was the act of, of Brian Haggis that that made um Brian Wilson who's the chairman of of um Harris Street Hebrides go and seek investment and go and 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 save you know that was his that was a single vision to 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 recreate jobs to keep the the archive of patterns and colors and and actually you know we're 13, 14 years on from, from that time. And Brian Haggis last year gifted his business on his retirement. He gifted his business to his manager, a Lewis man, a local man. And his concluding, you know, goodbye said, Harrisford belongs in the hands of Islanders, not Yorkshiremen or Englishmen. He he recognized that it belongs with island people. And and actually, Kim Mackenzie's is now a really important part of our island infrastructure. They are a busy, buoyant mill with many colours and patterns on their on their books. Employs lots of people, employs lots of weavers, and so in a kind of Shakespearean tragedy or villain, you know, he he actually um, was a really key person in 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 turning our industry round and and being what 
what it is today. And uh, and I, I think, you know, he acknowledges some of the mistakes. In his view, they were they were you know they were that was his strategy. But he he changed them when they weren't working. And and in in the most you know phenomenal gesture of kindness, he gifted his business to his manager because he knew he knew that was the right thing to do. And Harris Tweed, in Brian Haggis's view, belongs in the hands of Islanders. He really came good at the end. He did. <laughs> so, uh, I wanted to ask you, Becca. You probably are the one who knows most about it, but over the years, has the actual tweed itself changed, or is the tweed today much like it was, say, a hundred years ago? No. Um, one of the main differences is that at least if you get damp and then hot, you won't smell of urine anymore. So that's a good thing. <laughs> um, back in the day. When, um, like, when my grandmother and that was weaving, um, they they used to obviously be finishing the cloth themselves, and so they would have to soak it um, in steel urine to as a mordant for the dyes to make the dyes stick basically in the cloth. So that's one good thing um, about things moving forward and using the mills for finishing now that there's none of that going on. But would that have been the authentic urine from the weaver? So it was a very personal touch. Uh, from the whole family. Um, because oh. <laughs> back then, um, and I, I remember the, the tin bath, which still stayed outside my um, well, my granny's old family's home door. Uh, the tin bath just remained. Uh, they used to, like anybody anybody who, who went to the toilet, um, you know, it would go into the tin bath and would be left there to come still, even visitors. It was just a done thing. You needed to keep the urine. So that's just what you did. There is an unfortunate story about a man who went to visit uh, my my aunt, my great aunt's there at the house one night, and he had had a couple of small libations, shall we say. He, he'd had a few drams and was a little unsteady on his feet and unfortunately fell into the bath <laughs> the back door. <laughs> And they heard the commotion and came out, and there he was lying in this bath. Yeah. Um, but uh, so that's, that has moved on. In fact, that's actually, I'm totally changing the subject to say here, but something about the number of weavers there would have been back in the day. I don't know if many people realize, but it was very much a family affair. Um, and it's funny if you ever look back, if you do family history and you look back on census, censuses. Um, from that time and there might only be one person listed as for example a woolen weaveress and somebody else might be on that same thing as a spinner and somebody else might be there as the croft and somebody whatever else um, which is interesting as it is just a snapshot of that time when the assessor came to the house and somebody might be sitting spinning so they were a spinner and somebody else might actually physically be weaving so they were the weaver but everybody took their turn um, whoever was free jumped on the loom or was doing the spinning or whatever um, in these families. So I think sometimes the numbers aren't, especially back then, always accurate because you might have a family of eight um, and all of them would at some point be weaving. Um, same as all of them at some point would be milking the cow and running after the sheep and, and all these things. Very much a family affair. Um, anyway, that's a wee aside. What were we asking? The tweed. Well, the tweed back in the day would have been a lot heavier than what it is now. Proper, proper Harris tweed. Um, very durable, very waterproof, very heavy. Um, 
thick cloth. And that's the tweed that was used right up until I don't know, the 90s, I think it was, when they started really going down a kind of slightly thinner route. And then that was your, your standard wheat or your heavy wheat tweed. And then the what's now medium wheat, which then was light wheat, um, came in just for a slightly lighter fabric. Uh, not quite as waterproof because it wasn't as dense, but still showerproof, absolutely. Uh, I've even done tests myself just to check. And it'll hold a good weight of water before it lets any through. Um, uh, but now the, the standard weight or heavy weight has kind of fallen by the wayside, um, which personally I think is a great shame. Um, I think there's still a place for the old heavy weight tweed. Um, and medium weight as standard now is the heaviest weight you'll get. And then there's a, a super fine version, which is good for very lightweight clothing. Um, no use for upholstery or anything like that, um, but great for, for something light or children's clothing, things like that. It's not going to buckle their knees when they stick on a coat made out of the super fine <laughs> as opposed to the heavyweight small child dragging along the ground. Um there is I actually did some heavyweight we tweeds. Um one of the mills as a special order had produced the heavyweight yarn and then had some excess. So I bought some. And that stuff is bomb proof. It's brilliant. Um and that's the tweed I remember. You know, like things my mother had um, like from when she was young, and it is that very heavy, heavy tweed, heavyweight tweed. Um, I still have some of that yarn, and I do produce some of that tweed. It's very much when it's gone, it's gone, unfortunately. Um, but I also do some weaving for, I don't know what you call them, independent customers. So there's somebody in Lewis who shears his own sheep and then sends the, the fleeces down to U.S. to be processed into yarn. And he gets a heavyweight yarn um, made by them. And then I weave it for him um, as had his tweed. And then he has a tweed to sell. So there is still kind of heavyweight tweed being produced, but very much small scale and, and you know, to, to very specific orders. And in fact, U.S. wool, I, I weave tweeds for them as well. And they have a, a variety of, of weights. And some of them aren't the standard Harris Tweed weights, although they're still Harris Tweed, um, because everything you know, all the it gets very technical, but all the thread density counts and everything like that matches in. So it's quite interesting, you know. You'll do an in between weight between the medium and the super fine and everything, and so it's it's quite interesting getting a chance to do these things. But uh, yeah, it has definitely become lighter in color. Um, there's a lot more bright colors being used nowadays, and lighter in weight. But there's also I believe, and I, I I could be wrong, but the the mills, for example, will also produce a a medium wheat tweed that's not quite as dense as the dense medium wheat. <laughs> so that makes any sense whatsoever. Um, and then independence, like we we produce quite a, a quite a dense medium wheat tweed. So there's a few variations out there. But weaving Harris tweed from wool that has actually originated on the islands now that must be quite a rare. A rare tweed. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we don't have enough sheep to keep the whole Harris tweed industry going. And uh, they cleared us out once for that. And they shouldn't be doing it again. So they have to buy in fleece. Oh, I say we. I don't have to buy in any fleece. Um, but the mills are buying in fleece. Um, I mean, Lauren will know all about that stuff far more than I do. But it is. It's it's really nice that that, that traceability. It's almost like going back to the old ways where you were shearing your own sheep 
and you were spinning your own fleeces and you were weaving for your own tweed. It's it's kind of going back to that where the guy that, that's selling that tweed just now can name every single person involved in the production of that tweed from sheep to fabric. Um, and that's how it used to be. So, uh, yeah, I, I quite like that, actually, and being involved in something like that that's so... It's, it's a nod to the past, even though there's obviously more modern things been done. It's not being hand-spun anymore or anything like that. But, you know, it's it's quite nice to think that that's how it was done back in like my grandmother's day and things when she was weaving. So in addition to, to, to weight and colour um, and and setting the, the, the colour in, in urine, um, you know, the, the, we are now able to offer finishing um, finishes, waterproofing, fireproofing, uh, upholstery level uh, weight cloth, um, brushed finishing, cropped finishing, Teflon finishing. You know, our industry doesn't actually do the, fit, the finish, but you can now get Harris tweed in these in these finishes. And, and that's what's that's part of the story of why we've had to evolve. You know, if we want Harris tweed to remain relevant um, for use in in technical textiles and by street brands, we need to be able to say you can after after it's uh, being authenticated as genuine Harris tweed, it can be sent to a finisher for, for a, a, a waxed finish so that it can be used by you know in the fishing sector and um you know waterproofing for for footwear and, and things like that. so we, we you know it's just really basic innovation but but they weren't happening in our industry um and and, and now are um, and and just to confirm, yes, you're right. That that that's a really rare thing. That scenario of of the island crofter who who shears the sheep, uh, gets it turned into to yarn, and and gets it woven. That that, that that's that pretty unique nowadays. Um, the the industry buys its wool uh, via the British Wool Marketing Board. The island clip uh, crofters and 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 farmers um, send their wool to the British Wool Marketing Board. Uh, island clip will be added to the national clip, and some of it will come back to us. But generally, our island uses um, our island crofters breed blackface sheep. Our industry tends to use cheviot wool. Um, it is a, a slightly longer fibre, slightly more suitable for, for 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 weaving the kind of cloth we make. So, uh, uh, but but the the Harris Tweed Act defines that Harris Tweed must be one hundred percent pure new wool, first clip. Um, it doesn't it doesn't state it must be island wool or Scottish wool. It's just one hundred percent pure new wool. I often notice when looking at tweed that there are little bits of straw or twigs or something in it is that something that's added to make it more authentic or is it just <laughs> oh that's the sheep for you wandering all over the place. <laughs> i mean i can see some sheep some sheep just now on the hill so as they're going through the heather little bits will just come off and stick to their fleece as they're on the shore bits of seaweed and plastic and it's amazing actually what you find mixed in with it but it's all natural in itself than that it's it's in the fleece and as much as the fleece is scoured and processed and all the rest of it those wee bits will cling on and remain in it and as you're weaving some of it you'll notice and pick out and other bits are still there even when you get it back as finished cloth some customers don't want their cloth to be picked um have have these bits of natural fibers picked out they want they want to see the bits of hay and um, they ask the mill to specifically bypass the, the picking table, which is uh, the, the part of the finishing process where routinely they would tweeze her off and, and brush off these bits of, of, of natural uh, fibres that have been, been caught up in, in the wool. 
that our customers are many i believe that just ask don't don't touch it leave them so, so I was actually <laughs> not incorrect about uh, suggesting that it might be safe, right? I, I always think it's wonderful when I see it. So uh, I'm clearly one of the customers there <laughs> having the tweed made for. Somebody out there has a bit of tweed that they got from me with um, the legs of an insect woven into it. <laughs> I was weaving one night and this little wee, almost like a, like a crane fly type thing came down. And I couldn't stop in time before it was kind of woven. And then he was stuck in it. So I tried to get him back out. And unfortunately, two of his legs came off. He seemed quite happy. He flew away again. Um, <laughs> and I tried to come out. And I just, I, I then took a photo. And I thought, it's a great thing to put on social media. I took a photo of it. Ha, ha. But I forgot to take them back out. <laughs> so then they went through everything. And they'd, they'd still be there when I sold it. And I forgot. Forgot to ever check again. So somewhere, somebody has a bit of tweed with two, two legs. <laughs> now uh, i see we're running out of time dramatically here so in closing where is harris tweed today and where is it going any final thoughts or messages um well certainly from from my point of view um the the focus from the Harris authorities point of view remains um the protection of Harris Tweed. Um, we sadly live in a world um, where things can be copied and um, brands can be damaged. And um, we strongly punch above our weight in terms of our size and scale and budget and what we do to look after Harris Tweed, um, largely overseas. Um, we hold trademarks all over the world, but our fighting fund in, in China has to be um, significant. And uh, but we do that. We'll fight to we'll fight any fight if it means that we keep um, the Harris Tweed name and brand authentic and protected. That um, I've been in this job about uh, eleven years now, and that has become eighty percent of my time and resource, and eighty percent of the authority's budget is now. Uh, on 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 brand protection and online monitoring, uh, counterfeits, trademark infringements, all that sort of stuff. Unfortunately, um, but just on the more positive side of things, I think we have a true story of sustainability in the widest possible sense. I think there has been a real shift from customers and what they're looking for when they're buying cloth and garments and our story appeals it's through it's integrous it's it's what we are we can't pretend to be anything different and and uh, there is a place in the marketplace just now for i'm not saying has to is eco but i'm saying it's a really important sustainable fabric and and i think you know we have a a, a place to that finite finite level we talked about earlier to to to, to fill that market becca from our point of view one thing we don't have to worry about is the Harris Tweed brand because we have the Harris Tweed Authority doing it for us, which is fantastic. <clears throat> it allows, I mean, for me personally, I get to focus on the next generation. I did a talk in a local school, in the school I went to actually as a child a few years ago, and I've just been asked to do some more. Um, and I think that's really important. I think it's like Lauren was saying earlier, hey, there's, there's you know, people in the islands just now see this as an industry they can get into. And I think the younger you can get them and realise, yeah, it's still here, we can still do it, um, is really important. 
uh, same as my own kind of nephews and my niece and that. Get them. I mean, at the moment they're they're too wee. They sit on my knee when I'm weaving, but that's enough. They're quite interested and they're always asking, "Oh, are you in the shed? And what are you doing? Are you weaving today?" So I think I get a focus on that. From obviously, I produce tweed, I sell tweed. That isn't going to change. Um, but yeah, I want to try and make sure that there is going to be the the, the new generation coming into it. Um, and just keep keep getting the message out there about how amazing wool in itself is. Um, I last year I think it was no 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 twenty nineteen it was I bought myself a wool pillow. Um, I used to get quite a sweaty head when I was sleeping, and somebody just said a wool pillow will sort you out. And I thought, well, aye aye, whatever. Anyway, did some research, bought one. Oh my goodness, I now have a wool duvet. I am looking at wool mattress, <laughs> you know, and I work with wool. So you'd think if anybody was going to know about it and on all the amazing properties, then I would, especially because I do love a little experiment. I have tried burning tweed. It doesn't burn. It does create an awful smell. So, so if you are going to try it, do it outside. Um, I have done tests where I have suspended tweed and put water on it to see how much water it'll take before it'll soak through. Surprisingly amount. Surprising amount. I have tried you know, bleaching tweed, dyeing tweed, doing all these kind of things, just just to show off how, how good it is, and yet never really taking that and transferring that to how important wool is and how special it is. So I think getting the message out there, like Lauren was saying, about how incredible this fabric actually is, um, and, and, yeah, getting the next generation excited about it. I think it's the kind of thing that it's... Oh, it just gets into you, doesn't it, Lorna? And you can't help it then. Every opportunity, you know, you're either standing there banging on about Harris Tweed or showing off or, or some poor person comes to my shed and asks one question and three hours later I'm still ranting on about some element of the Harris Tweed industry or showing them this or showing them that or, or you know, showing off colours. And and it, it just, I'm so excited by it that I want other people to share that excitement and that love and that passion and to understand that this is special. Um, it's it's not run of the mill and yeah, just keep trying to get that message out there. Brilliant. Okay, um, I'd like to extend a huge thanks to you, Lorna and Becca. This was really great, and uh, I hope to visit the Hebrides again sometime soon. Well, I'll pop into the shed. Well, I thought I'd get my own shed and uh, set myself up as a weaver. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a great life. Thanks, Nick, for your interest. Thanks a lot, both of you, and bye-bye. Uh, Cheers. And that concludes this week's episode of Gomology. A big thanks to Lorna McCauley and Rebecca Hutton, I'll leave their contact details in the episode notes so you can get in touch with them if you wish to. I am Nick Johannesson, creator and host of Gomology. If you'd like to get in touch with me, send an email to gomology at welldresseddad.com. If you enjoyed this, you might also like my blog at welldresseddad.com or even just follow me on Instagram as welldresseddad. I'd really appreciate it if you left the podcast a rating or even a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a bit harder on other platforms. And um, even shared it with your mum or your friends. It's really hard for a smaller podcast to make it out there. So until next week, thanks a lot and uh, bye-bye.